Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Roy Tanami, and he'll be answering your questions on angling the world. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Roy a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, just use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and share the opportunity of all the learning that's going to happen here tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Roy Tanami about angling the world. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dweller's Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com. Or call them at 800-962-9755. That's 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Roy, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Roy's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Roy's book, Angling the World, Ten Spectacular Adventures in Fly Fishing, courtesy of Lions Press. Find out more about the books that Lions Press publishes, go to lionspress.com. That's L-Y-O-N-S press.com. Now, here's how you can win Roy's book. You have to be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something that Roy and I talk about during the show. Just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage, and you'll have a chance to win. you just got to be the first one with the right answer. So listen closely, take notes, type fast, and hopefully you'll win Roy's book, Angling the World, Ten Spectacular Adventures in Fly Fishing. Our guest tonight is Roy Tanami. Roy is a prominent international outdoor photographer and contributing editor to Wild on the Fly. 
a leading fly fishing travel magazine. He also guides for steelhead in northern British Columbia and is a certified fly fishing international fly casting instructor. He lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. Roy, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks, Roger. Good to be here. Good to be here. Roy says it's getting cold up there in British Columbia. <laughs> so uh, we're entering winter season, it sounds like. But there are all kinds of places to fish in the world where it's warm, right, Roy? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, actually right now it's pretty much the middle of steelhead season for us in northern B.C. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so yeah it's, it's time. prime time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, in most years you're up there guiding, doing that as well as doing photography and travel around the world, right? Yeah, well, you know, these days mostly I'm guiding for Roger, and most other years I'd be up there guiding Steelhead right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your travels and your journeys, your photography, your writing. When did you first start photographing and writing about fly fishing? That came kind of, I'd say, closer to the tail end of my shooting and writing. I was doing more wildlife photography at the time, as well as fish guiding and all kinds of things. And then, yeah, the shooting assignments on fly fishing happened probably in the last 10 years that I was really doing that for a living. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and it kind of, I was actually guiding my own operation up in the Arctic when I sort of started doing this photojournalism for fly fishing. So that's kind of how that whole end of things started was the publisher of Well on the Fly magazine contacted me as a fishing operator to cover my operation. And then we sort of figured out that or he figured out that I was a photographer and a writer as well, and so then we started working on stories together. Roy, are you still there? Yeah. <laughs> so okay, it dropped off third time in 16 years, Roy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, folks, every time I brief, my guests, before we get on the shows, I say, hey, if, if you drop off, dial back in, and I'll entertain everybody. If I drop off, I'll be dialing back in. And I told Roy it's only happened twice in 16 years, and tonight was the third time. So uh, <laughs> sorry about that, Roy. Yeah, there's a third time for everything, Roger. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, because I'm going, Roy, Roy, and then I realize it's me that's dropped off. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't okay. sure what happened, but anyway, I called you back, and so on. Seems to work. Okay. Okay, so folks, if you're still out there, we're still here, and we'll see if we can't get this continued here. So you were talking about that you were approached by the – let's pick up where you left off kind of work. You were approached by the editor of Wild on the Fly while you were running a – what was it a guiding operation, an outfitting operation in the Arctic? Yeah, I was running an operation with a friend of mine, Martin Knutson, and we were heli fishing up in the Canadian Arctic, which was kind of a crazy deal, but that's what we were doing. And yeah, and Joe Daniel, the guy who was the publisher of Wild on the Fly, contacted us to cover the operation. And what were you fishing for when you were running this operation? 
Our whole focus up there was sea-run Arctic char. That's kind of what we were trying to catch. (laughs) Uh Uh, But we did catch a lot of lake trout and grayling as well. But what we were primarily trying to find was a really out there sea-run Arctic char fishery on the fly, which kind of there's not too many places in the world that do that and the operation we were trying to run was way out there like we were in the middle of nowhere flying in helicopters and so it was it was kind of an ambitious undertaking (laughs) it sounds like it yeah yeah and the the more i think about it as time passes this was many years ago the crazier it is but we saw some pretty incredible stuff yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Where was it run out of? I mean, where were you flying out of? Well, we were flying out of a little lodge on the Elu Peninsula, which is on the Arctic coast of Canada. And oh. the closest, they call them hamlets, basically an Inuit village, was on Victoria Island, which is the first Arctic island above the mainland of Canada. And you could fly into Cambridge Bay on a jet, but then we would pick you up in a helicopter and fly you back down to the lodge, which, I mean, that flight in itself from Cambridge Bay to our lodge was about, you know, depending on weather, it was about 45-minute flight in a A-star. That 45 minutes was almost worth the price of admission. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. That was incredible, I mean, too, huh? Yeah, we had so many guests fly in that on their way into the lodge saw herds of muskox and some of them were button heads and this is before you get to the lodge you see stuff like this wow Um, yeah a lot of them sort of got off the helicopter pretty excited super short season i imagine though up there huh yeah very short and it was pretty exploratory nobody had really done a lot of it, a lot of this sort of thing before, and nobody still has. Mm-hmm. It's a very remote area, very difficult to get to, very expensive, and yeah, it was just kind of crazy when I think about it. Yeah, well, and look where you, and then from there you went on to do other crazy trips around the world. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of crazy fly fishing trips out there. That the one thing that I did realize from that or from doing all this is if you want to find a crazy place follow a fly fisherman <laughs> yeah that's right that's yeah. right well what came first for you then was fishing first or photography or writing or you know what came first uh, for you you mean for a living yeah or well, or, was, or just an interest yeah Well, I've been fishing since I was a kid, so I guess that came first. And then as far as jobs and stuff went, I went to university. I guess you could say, uh, like, I got an English and political science degree. I mean, I guess you could kind of say I was trained to write. But anyway, yeah, the first jobs I had when I got out of college were writing jobs, and then I started shooting pictures. And so the fishing is just kind of a thread that went through the whole thing, you know. It was there all along, yeah. 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 You know, what was your journey to get where you are today? What pre-doing the guiding and outfitting and the 
wild on the fly. What were you doing prior to that? Well, I mean, when I got out of college, I started writing just all kinds of stuff, contracts. I worked at an aquarium here in Vancouver for a long time, writing kind of everything, like hmm. from educational to marketing material, fundraising, you know, the whole nine yards. And ran into a bunch of photographers, like high-level kind of natural history photographers through that work and talking about guys that were kind of the top photographers for National Geographic and real top-level guys and just kind of got interested in that whole world. Sort of switched from writing to photography and started doing that. Mm. <laughs> and Yeah, and when you... You know, as a freelancer, you sort of, especially when you start, you need other ways to make money. And so fish yeah. guiding was, you know, fish guiding was just something that, if, yeah. that was there for those in-between times. Yeah. And I was going to say fish guiding, maybe not that much better than photography at times. Huh? I mean, it's like a, a seasonal thing as well. And uh yeah, 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 it's kind of a toss-up, but it's you know when you're kind of, when you're doing that sort of thing, it's good to be able to do more than one thing. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of like here in Colorado, you're if you're a, a ski bum and a fishing guide kind of thing. <laughs> you want to ski the winters and fish the summers. You yeah, know, that's, yeah. That's when you're young kind of a, and crazy, you know, yeah. that's a life, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's all a lifestyle thing, you know, Roger. Right. Not, yeah, I mean, none of this is career planning. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of thought was put into it at the time. I know, I know. Yeah. yeah. We talked earlier because, folks, I had a career in commercial photography before I'm doing what I'm doing now, and so we kind of compared some notes before the show about the life of a photographer, and none of it's easy. Let's put it that way. None of it's easy. So when you are successful, then we know you paid your dues, right? So, <laughs> so all's good there. You said you were kind of, it sounded like almost headhunted from your Arctic fishing operation to do some work for Wild on the Fly. So how did, how did yeah, that come I, down? I wouldn't really say headhunted, but it just, <laughs> uh, when I met these guys, they met me as a fishing outfitter. And when... Joe found out that my background was in photography and writing. He sort of said, well, why don't you do some stories for us? And I said, sure, (laughs) and just kind of went along with that. And that was, as far as the book goes, that's all the trips around the world to different fly fishing destinations was basically to do with shooting magazine stories for Wild on the Fly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and yeah, it's not like I sat back and said, hey, I want to travel the world and fly fish, and <laughs> how do I do this? It just kind of came out of a different world. Yeah, yeah, just the stars aligned, and there it was, and you took hold, and, and off you went, yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of the story of my life, you know, I don't plan, or you know, I don't really <laughs> plan anything, it's just stuff comes up, and I all of the stuff that I'm interested in. Right, right. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I wish I could tell you different, Roger. You know, like I planned it all out, but I didn't. Oh, very few of us do, I think. Mm. You take life as it comes and try to make the best of it. 
sometimes it falls into place and other times it doesn't. That's, yeah. That's life, yeah. So do you consider yourself a better fly fisher or a better photographer? Whoa, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I probably fly fisher. I have to say, I, I like I'm not great at either, but you know, I could, yeah, I'd probably. There's so much incredible photography out there right now that there is. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't really even shoot too many pictures anymore, except with my phone. Yeah, and as you know, and you've probably seen some of the pictures people are getting on their phones are incredible including yeah. video work. And I guess, you know, the new iPhone's coming out now too, which is supposed to be even better. Yeah, I mean, you can do things on your phone that we couldn't do with a SLR back in the day. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Since you started doing the work for a while on the fly, did you do any other kind of writing or photography to fill the gaps? Or no, you know, I... time gig? It wasn't full-time. It got pretty busy for a while because we also tried to shoot a TV pilot, and so we were I was shooting video for them as well and going to different destinations that, you know, never ended up as magazine stories but kind of a trailer for possible TV that didn't quite pan out, but they were doing it anyway. So there was a whole other series of trips to shoot video as well that didn't wind up in any kind of magazine or book or anything. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it did get pretty busy. But at the time, you know, I was kind of doing a little bit of everything, like shooting pictures. And I had a little stock agency in Vancouver where I was representing the work of other photographers as well. So, you know, it was just kind of a whole mishmash of stuff that you got to do when you're a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. You know, and right. fish guiding was a part of that, too, that had nothing to do with anything to do with the media. It was just you went and fish guided different Yeah, and something you really obviously love. I mean, you, you said you've been guiding for steelhead for the past 15 years up in uh, B.C., right? So, obviously. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, my guiding started – not even in fly fishing, just conventional fishing for salmon all up and down the coast. Yeah, it was, the, you know, all these things are going on kind of at once. Whatever was yeah. going to pay the bills was what I was going to do. You know? Right, right, yeah. right. Well, Roy, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue on and talk more about uh, your writing, journalism, and uh, your travels. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Again, charlielesliefly.fishing.com, or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. 
You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Roy Tanami about angling the world. If you'd like to ask Roy a question, just go to our homepage uh, at Ask About Fly Fishing and use that Q&A text box there to send us your question. So, Roy, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world right now. And as you said, you're, you're still doing some guiding. You want to tell people about your guide service and where people can get a hold of you for that? Yeah, well, for fly fishing, I'm guiding steelhead, and not this year, but most years. And I'm guiding the Kispiox River and sort of the rivers, some of the rivers around there, which is in northern BC. And so I fish for a buddy of mine at the Kispiox Fishing Company out of the Barraclaw Lodge. And for for steelheaders, anyway, the Kispiox is it's one of those kind of rivers that's a shrine that's pretty well known to steelheaders all around the world. Like a lot of our regular clients are from Europe and Argentina and the UK, and they come from all over the world, which happens kind of in that northern BC Smithers Terrace region for steelhead in every year. Like it's a world destination. And the Kispiox is kind of right in the middle of it. It's quite a famous river because among all the famous steelhead tributaries on the Skeena, the Kispiox is known to have some of the bigger strains of steelhead. I mean, people have caught 40-pound steelhead in the Kispiox, so it's it's that class of river. And, yeah, so as far as my fly fishing life goes, now I do that and... Um, yeah. How do people, uh, if they wanted to go up and fish with you, how would they contact you regarding that? They can go to Bear Claw Lodge on the Kispiox. If you Google that, you'll wind up with the lodge site, and they can take all the requests and bookings from there. Okay, great. Great, great. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, thanks for sharing with us. Let's talk about when you were going on these trips so you knew where you were going. Did you research before you went, once you were out there? Did you take notes, these voice recordings during the trip or right during the trip? What was your what was your process for these worldwide trips? You know, like everything else, I didn't really have a process. I just went. The articles I was writing were mostly, I would say, travel log. They're not how to catch a tarpon articles or how to uh-huh. catch a steelhead. They were mostly geared around basically fly fishing travel, which maybe an emphasis more on the travel than fly fishing, if that makes any kind of sense. And so I was really just kind of going, writing about the experience of, of going to these different places and catching these different things, you know. Did you, so you actually got to fish on these trips, or were you just photographing and observing? I thought that fishing was part of my job, Roger. (laughs) (laughs) I had to to write about this stuff, so that was my excuse. I, you know, had had to fish. Yeah, obviously, you know, in those days, it was, most of the stories were shot on film. It was that era, so it was getting the shots were probably the most, important thing on that I had to make sure of and 
after that, it was just putting together stories, and, you know, the written part. And I didn't really follow scripts or I was or notes. You know, I took obviously some notes, but I didn't have a plan, you know, going into it. But yeah, in those days, uh, like shooting film is obviously very different than shooting digital. It was, um, yeah, that was my biggest stress was getting the shots. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally understand that. Yeah, and, and I in the film know. days, you know, traveling around the world, the the difficult thing was the security and going through X-ray machines and stuff, and sending your right. film through X-ray machines in airports. You might go through two or three airports anywhere in the world to come and go from your destination, and every time you went through security, you're sending your film through x-ray machines, which, you know, nothing ever happened to my film, but you always worried about it. And uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was one of the things that I certainly don't miss about photography is, car- well, A, carrying around a lot of film, and B stressing about putting it through an x-ray machine and some places would hand examine your film and not put it through the machine but when you're in places like russia and stuff they're not really too concerned about your film you know they don't care so yeah it's all yeah it's all going through the x-ray machine so that's just one of the yeah and uh and the thing i'm assuming you shot like 35 millimeter back then yeah probably kodachrome or yeah, a lot of Kodachrome, a lot of Velvia, mostly, and that was Fuji. But and then yeah, you couldn't, I, and it was tough to get it processed on site or impossible. So you had to wait till you come back to to find out whether you got the shots or not, right? Yeah, impossible. I mean, it was a whole different paradigm then. Like you didn't. Well, most of the time you were in such remote places that you wouldn't even think about sending film out. And you didn't want to do that either, even in the best of circumstances, because you could be here and FedEx your film to somewhere else, and you never knew if it was going to get there. So, yeah, I, you're bringing back all kinds of bad memories for me, Roger. <laughs> you know, all, all sweating it well, out I, beside x-ray uh, machines and how to deal with film. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just brings back my memory of uh, probably the – it was probably one of the most fun jobs I ever did, but also stressful was uh, I spent three weeks photographing timeshare resorts up and down the coast of Australia and shooting Kodachrome. And, of course, back then you had to set it to a lab that did Kodachrome. Not every lab, you know, they had to be Kodak back then, right? So I shot for three weeks and had bags full of film and stressed about getting home to the U.S. and hoping I got what we needed. <laughs> so I've been there, done that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and now I, I walk around and I see pro photographers shooting and they they shoot, they look at their camera, see if they got it. They go on and shoot again, see if they got it. They don't even shoot Polaroid. They, you know, it's, it's, it's so much easier nowadays in that regard. So I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> you probably are too, huh? Yeah, that part of it, but I think with along with that just came a whole higher level of imagery. You know, it's just there's so much more there's so many more images to look at. It's just way more competition now. Mm-hmm. It's tough. So that's the trade-off is it might be easier to get them a little bit, but it's harder to get a good one. Yeah, and 
Well, people maybe aren't as trained as they were with film. I mean, with film, as they were with film, because you did have to get the light right. You did have to get the shot. Nowadays, you can mess with it afterwards and fix some things up if you need to. But, but yeah, with film, it was do or die kind of thing. <laughs> and I know since you've described how your life has gone, uh, this is kind of an interesting question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, if you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? If you went back 20 years, what changes would you, you make going forward? Maybe become a plumber? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, or something like that. But yeah, I don't know if I... I don't know if you do anything <laughs> different, huh? Yeah, you know, I I don't think I would just because then I didn't realize this when I was doing it. And I actually remember somebody saying this to me when I was younger. It's like he said, you're a lifestyle type. And I had no idea what that meant because I still thought I was trying to make money. <laughs> and um, but <laughs> You're always trying to make money. Right? Yeah, I'm always trying to make money, but... Yeah, when you look at stuff and how other people go through their lives, it's just like the kind of writing and photography I did. And I think it's true for people out there now that are, say, shooting stuff like surfing or skiing. It's real hard to make a solid living out of doing that. I mean, there are a few guys that are doing it, but mostly it's, I think it's people doing it because they want to surf or they want to ski or, you know, in my case, I was fishing. It, uh, like I say, I didn't really realize that's what was going on at the time, but kind of how it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Did you do most of your writing then when you got back home after a trip? Yeah. When you kind of put it all together? Yeah. I would just be taking sort of bare bones notes and it, for the kind of writing I was doing and for magazine stories, I mean, say for any of the the stories that are in the book or the trips that I've done, it is not hard to get like a 3,000-word article out of a fishing trip, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't really too worried about taking notes. It was, for me, it was more like a question of what do you leave out? Right. And, and yeah. As far as the writing end of things go, you wind up with a lot of content where the shooting end of it was a little bit harder because some of the places you go, the maybe the fishing isn't always so great when you're there or the weather or there's any number of things that can sort of screw you up. But as far as the stories went, there was always way more to talk about than you could fit in an article. Yeah, yeah, so it's more about editing it down rather than trying to create. Yeah, more, or, you yeah. know, just picking your spots about what you wanted to talk about. Right, right. Well, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll, we'll dig into some of the trips you took, and i uh, love for you to share your memories of those. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies and catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components 
that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and its methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com, and do a little shopping with Enrico today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Roy Tanami about angling the world. If you'd like to ask Roy a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Roy, let's start digging into some of these uh, places you went. And first one up is, what do you think was probably the most exciting trip that you ever took? That's a hard one, Roger. I mean, they were all pretty exciting. I'd say the first one was exciting just because it was the first one, and I couldn't actually believe that, you know, somebody was sending me to Russia to go catch steelhead, you know, and getting paid for it too. So, yeah, but, you know, people always ask me, what was your favorite trip and what was the most exciting? I, I mean, I would have to tell you that they were all pretty crazy trips, places that I never really imagined going where I, you know, maybe just imagined going but never expected to actually be there in person. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. I got to tell you, the first time being a steelhead angler, I mean, in BC, if you grow up as a fly fisherman, steelhead's kind of the pinnacle of your fly fishing world. It's just kind of right. like, uh, like a tarpon in South Florida, right? It's the big deal. And when a magazine publisher says he wants to send you to Kamchatka to go fish for steelhead, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. But and through the course of doing all this stuff, I mean, I had I was so lucky to you know I did everything from flats fishing in Cuba to peacock bass in Brazil, all the stuff in Argentina. New Zealand, you name it. It's It wasn't kind of just as if we were covering trout or whatever. We were covering everything. So it was right. saltwater, flats, it was billfish. You know, you, you name it, we right. covered it. Yeah. Well, tell me, so it's, it's tell so me about to, your trip to Russia. Tell us how it went. You know, it went great. The funny thing about Russia from a fishing perspective is I was there for two weeks, and as a steelhead guy, I only caught one steelhead while I was there. I mean, people were catching, yeah, other people were catching more steelhead. Steelhead is kind of like permit and tarpon. It's not a numbers game, even at the best of times. But, But, yeah, I went through a pretty good dry spell in Russia the first trip and uh, anyway so that one steelhead that I caught in Russia still sticks with me. Was that Kamchatka that you went to? Yeah. In in Russia? Yeah. Yeah and we were fishing three rivers in Kamchatka that were all kind of in close well fairly close proximity and yeah I, I didn't catch fish for probably I don't know I'm I'm trying to think it's maybe 11 days or so. Yeah, it was right near the end of the trip. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, in between so, there, I, you were also photographing other fly fishers oh yeah. and so forth and all that. Yeah, and just, yeah. The, you know, it's like anywhere you go, the 
anywhere like that, which when I say like that, I mean, it was just the the situation you were in was so incredible that not catching fish part was not so bad. Uh-huh. It's not like going to your local stream and getting skunked for 10 days. You're sort of in the middle of Kamchatka and there's all this crazy stuff going on. The fact that you're not catching a fish, you know, I guess for some people it might be worse, but for me it was wasn't so bad because there was all kinds of other stuff going on. So I'm kind of map out how you got there and, you know, what the journey was like to get there because I imagine that well, was from, pretty... from the west coast of Canada, it's or from Vancouver, it's not so bad because you fly to Anchorage and then the routing we took was from Anchorage over to Petropavlovsk in Kamchatka, which is, it's Alaska's close to Kamchatka. So mm-hmm. Sarah Palin could see it from her house, right? <laughs> yeah. So right. Um, anyway, saw uh, the steelhead jumping, huh? <laughs> yeah. As far as the actual travel time, it wasn't one of the furthest trips I ever took, and I'd been through a lot of Alaska before, and so in that regard, it was kind of. I don't know, you'd maybe familiar territory. And I'd also spent a lot of time up in northern Canada. I, in terms of the travel, it wasn't that far gone. But actually, when I got there, it was way more different than I thought. Kamchatka is, so? is well, the, the steelhead streams in Kamchatka are mostly flowing to the west off the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is not the Pacific. It's the Sea of Okotsk or whatever they call it. but And that side of the peninsula is very different than the east side of the peninsula that sort of faces Alaska. The east side, the Pacific side, you know, the Bering Sea side is more like what we're used to where, you know, big mountains and conifers and stuff like that. But the other side of Kamchatka is very, it's not real steep mountains. It's sort of more rolling hills and the steelhead streams are very different than the sort of the freestone streams that we have up here for steelhead, like the mountain rivers. They're kind of low gradient, sort of almost ditchy rivers that are covered in birch forest. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's quite a different, it's a real different situation for us in the Pacific Northwest that are used to our steelhead streams. Yeah, I would have, uh, you know, you said you didn't catch a steelhead until the end of the trip. Was it, what about for everybody else? Was it tough fishing for everybody? I, I guess if I went to Kamchatka, I would kind of expect the fishing to be pretty, you know, I don't want to say easy because steelhead is never easy, but better than maybe a lot of West Coast Canadian places just because it doesn't get fished as much. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that, that's kind of a tough one. Like, 11 days of getting skunked on steelhead is a long time for anybody anywhere. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. So I, it was either me or it was the conditions or who knows, but it wasn't happening. I would say that, like, even in northern BC, which I've fished steelhead everywhere steelhead live, like in... BC, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, in Kamchatka, and also in the Santa Cruz River in Argentina, which is the only 
river where there are Atlantic sea run rainbows. And I mean, I think what we have in BC is you could easily say it's the best steelheading in the world, you know, with all the Skeener tribs and mm-hmm. it's just what we have that's the best. But even at that, like going a day or two getting blanked on steelhead anywhere on our rivers or in any of the premier spots is really kind of not unheard of. <laughs> you know, it's not as if no. you're going to go and catch 10 steelhead a day anywhere you go is kind of what I'm trying to say. Right, right. Yeah. And in Kamchatka, you know, like, yeah, the other English were catching fish. They'd go, yeah, they were catching more fish than I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at is it. Yeah. So what did, I mean, was it worth going to Kamchatka to, I mean, the experience, like you say, is always worth it, no matter what happens, I think, but because it's always an adventure, right? But was the fishing any better? I mean, not considering for yourself, but in general, did you think the fishing for steelhead was better there or not as good as uh, BC? Well, that's a tough question. I'd say it was as good. I wouldn't say it was any better. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen some pretty top-notch steelhead opportunities in my life, like probably the like stuff that I I couldn't even explain to people that were even hardcore steelheaders and the thing with going to places like Kamchatka or even the Santa Cruz River in Argentina is the location is almost more important than fish. Like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense to you. Because um, it's, even as a hardcore steelheader, it's a crazy deal to catch a steelhead in Argentina. Mm-hmm. You're fishing in a totally different environment than what steelhead normally live in and you're on the other side of the world catching a steelhead it's so it's yeah i don't know if i'm explaining this well but it's more like the location is more important Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think for traveling anglers i would say that's almost always the case because just because you go somewhere doesn't mean that you're going to be guaranteed to catch fish yeah. yeah, yeah. That's there was a question. I'll throw this one in there from Phil in Kentucky. He says, "When you have traveled to a location and in anticipation of excellent fishing, only to arrive and be told you should have been here last week, if not, how do you avoid that situation?" But have you experienced that? Yeah, you know yeah. the <laughs> the the Russia thing. But I mean, you know, even as a guide, I've experienced that. And to answer that question. I would say there's no way of doing that. I mean, you can go to any premier fly fishing spot in the world and at prime time and still, like, have bad fishing. Right. You know, you, right. you're probably not going to, but it's anytime you're dealing with anything outside, there's, you just have no control over it. You know? Yeah, you, yeah. It's yeah. Um, this past summer, my cousin went up to fish uh, Gray Reef up in Wyoming, North Platte River, and uh, so he starts texting me all these nice shots of all these great fish he's catching this day, and then the next day I get nothing, and uh, <laughs> so I text him back, I said, well, 
aren't you guys fishing today? And he says, we fished all day, and not one of us caught a fish today. But the day before, they were knocking them dead. Now, go figure, you know. <laughs> and the weather didn't change or anything. It was just fishing, right? <laughs> it was just yeah, fishing. Yeah, and that's just the deal. And I think that a lot of people that, well, I kind of personally think a lot of people would get a lot more enjoyment out of fishing if they didn't put so much emphasis on catching the fish. I mean, uh-huh. we're fly fishing anyway, which is not the greatest way to catch a fish in the first place. Right. And so making um, it hard on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you really want to catch a fish, throwing a fly at him is probably not what you want to do. Yeah. And so, yeah. But in to answer the question, I think you just can't. You know, you gotta take your chances. Right. Right. You know. Well, tell me. I, yeah. Yeah. I think if you don't, you're just setting yourself up for a fall. Well, I know, uh, I know Kamchatka was beautiful, and now it, just to kind of finish that off, you yeah. didn't really tell us what happened once you got off the plane in Kamchatka. What was the journey like to where you're going fishing? What were the accommodations like? Well, that's pretty interesting. You know, when you get off the – well, when the plane lands in Russia – like up in PK anyway is when when I landed, as the plane's going down the runway and you're looking beside the runway, there's bunkers with MiG fighters in them that are pointed towards the runway that you don't see from the air. So the first thing, you know, when you're landing in Petropavlovsk, which is like a crazy-looking harbor in the middle of nowhere, and you land, and the first thing you see when you're rolling down the apron is all these fighter jets that are just sitting there on the runway ready to go. And then, you know, like everybody in the Russian airport is military. And because Kamchatka was a military sort of stronghold for a long time. I mean, even Russians weren't allowed to go there for the longest time. So for a guy from Vancouver, you know, that was all pretty different. (laughs) And, And then from there into the camps, we were flying in the, in the Russian Mi-8 helicopters, which is, you know, most of the pictures you see are the big orange double-bladed choppers, and that's kind of, you know, an experience in itself. And so I, I've been in quite a few of those choppers now, like on in Kamchatka, and I fished the Kola Peninsula once, and, you know, you're traveling in those things as well. And in Mongolia, they're flying them. They're, it looks like, you're getting into a machine that was built in the 50s. But I'll tell you, like I've flown around in a lot, a lot of helicopters, and you can put more in one of those Russian Mi-8s than, than you could ever imagine. Anyway, so you get in one of those, and you fly out, and in the Russian camps, we were staying in tents. And did they have boats there, go up and down river? Were you walking? What was... Yeah, there was a little John boat, jet boats, not big boats. They're not big rivers. And as I said, they're, the rivers that we fish, there's only three of them. But on the smaller side and low gradient, you know, not a lot of big rapids like we're used to in BC. And um, actually on in one of the rivers that we fish, we went on horseback. And that was pretty crazy too because there's some native Russians up there, 
they're called Koryak people, and they're nomadic horse people. And they came to the camp, and they took us on horses overland to the other rivers. That was all pretty high adventure, too. Yeah, I bet. I yeah. bet. Oh, yeah. Oh. So yeah. let's uh, so. let's take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, I want you to think about the most awe-inspiring trip you took. So uh, we'll be right back, and can't wait to hear what you have to tell us. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like Peacock Bass Study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remain unchanged to serve as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Roy Tanami about angling the world. If you'd like to ask Roy a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay, we did get another question, a couple of questions here on the Internet. Roy, one, uh, Bob Younger, he says, of all the places in the world, well, we kind of said he wanted to know what you enjoy most, but he also asked, did you ever have any issues with pirates? I did not, but I did go to the Seychelles, and I know there was a piracy incident there, I think a couple of years after I was there, and there I think, yeah, the Seychelles was having a few problems with piracy. It's <laughs> um, crazy mm-hmm. as that sounds, but I have never encountered that myself. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, when I was in Belize once, and, and I was out on a boat with just a guide, that's Panga, um, but some guys came up in another boat, and my guide was getting very anxious about the situation. And... He kind of told him to stay back, and he was, like, ready to go with the engine. So I think there's there from Honduras, they were having a lot of problems with theft and minor piracy, just, you know, with guideboats and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, stealing the boats, taking them to Honduras, painting them, and then selling them kind of thing. Right. So he was a little anxious, I found, at that point in time. But, yeah, well, good good to know that, that you didn't get in, into any of that. So what's, of course, every place is, we go fly fishing is beautiful usually, but what was the most awe-inspiring trip you took? You know, that's hard to say. Like, like I've said, it's very difficult to single this stuff out, especially because of the kind of trips that I was covering, which oh, it was lucky because as I went into this, I had a quite a good rapport with the magazine, and we could talk about places we wanted to cover and they were the places that were kind of the more out there sort of 
destinations and, you know, not really like resort fishing. I mean, although there was some of that, but a lot of the the stuff we wanted to cover was the stuff that was on the edges, which the operation I was running in the Arctic, I think that's primarily the reason they found us is because we were out there. In those terms, like the peacock bass thing I did in Brazil, I mean, there were other peacock bass operations operating in sort of closer proximity to civilization than the experience I had there. Um, that was a pretty cool one, just because the guys that were running that operation were really exploring the outer reaches of some of the Amazon rivers, and it was just pretty cool to be in the middle of the Amazon jungle. I mean, we weren't even standing a lodge. We were standing a riverboat, and there were times that we would take off in our little, like, they weren't pongas, but they were kind of like john boats, and we would go way up tributaries, you know, a lot of places where you'd have to get out and push the boat over some sandbars and stuff to get to and camp out in the jungle for a couple nights. That's pretty amazing to be in the middle of the Amazon jungle doing that. So I, I'd have to put that one kind of up there on the outer edges yeah. of things that were sort of awe-inspiring. And as I say, the trips that we were running in the Arctic, when I think back on what we were doing, like, I wouldn't do it now. You know, like, it was crazy stuff, but at the time, you're you're not really thinking about it, and, uh, but, yeah, I mean, being out in the Arctic in the middle of nowhere, and I remember when we were doing the recon for this whole operation, when we'd get dropped off by the helicopter, and the pilot had to go somewhere for fuel or whatever, even being left watching the helicopter fly away in a location like that was, it would freak you out. Because if you even thought about what happens if the helicopter goes mechanical, you're really in the middle of nowhere, period, full stop. No other helicopters nearby to come and get you. you It's kind of a whole different mindset when you're in places like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Amazon was kind of like that. The Arctic was was like that, you know. uh, What was your trip like going to the Amazon? What was, uh, you know, of course you did some flights to get down there, but once you got down there, what was it? What was the journey like? Pretty pretty awesome. It was, you know, flying into Manaus, which you either access that from, or we accessed it from Rio or Sao Paulo, and So you fly into Manaus, which is quite a big city. I think at the time we were there, it was about a million people. And then you got on this riverboat, which which was a double-decker, you know, a big boat. And we went for, gee, I think it was three days upstream. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that trip alone, just to get to where you're going, is crazy. So, yeah, it was very exotic. You know, you're, the Manaus is where the two major tributaries of the Amazon come together to make the main Amazon River. So it's just an inherently interesting place. There's two of the world's major rivers coming together to make this huge river, and there's pink dolphins swimming around and all kinds of stuff. Like, And so, yeah, even that, just the boat journey up, 
three days worth to get to your fish and was again you know kind of like our helicopter ride in the arctic it was that was probably worth the price of admission right there you know and, and this is before you even tossed a fly so right right yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's an adventure yeah now were you after yeah. peacock bass there or other things yeah or? yeah well you know there's so many fish you can catch in the yeah. amazon that that um but yeah we were after peacock bass and we were getting big peacock bass because as i say the two fellows that were running the operation were real explorers and so it, we were not staying in an air-conditioned lodge. And so these guys had kind of, I guess they were lifestyle types too, Roger. <laughs> and uh, so they weren't really doing this to make money. They were just doing this to, to fund their own explorations, I think. And anyway, yeah, so the, we were getting big peacock bass, and they're pretty amazing to catch. They're yeah. just so aggressive, so strong big colorful very it's not easy fishing because you're we were fishing them with single-handed rods like nine weights and casting a big fly a big wet fly so it was you know not easy casting and it's 100 degrees and you're on sort of the front of this john boat kind of like flat style and sort of paddling along the shores and just banging the shore with this big streamer and catching these big aggressive fish yeah yeah yes yeah sounds exciting sounds exciting uh was most of that tap water or or no there you could catch them on poppers it was all floating line but you're streamers. fishing big streamers yeah and by big i mean like eight inches long kind of big and uh yeah. so wow. you know when that gets wet it's it's not all that easy to cast yeah and, it's like fishing uh, for pike, right? Pike or musky, kind of. Yeah, except it's 100 degrees. And yeah. the, the Amazon, you know, the, the whole And no breeze, there, probably, right? Yeah, it, you know, we didn't have very much breeze, and we were supposed to be there in the rainy season, and it didn't rain for two weeks. And uh, But you'd be gliding along these little lagoons, and mostly the water was colored. It was black. You couldn't really see too far into it, but... You know, when these things started busting bait on the shore, it was like explosions were happening because they're explosive and fish would be flying out of the air or flying out of the water like five feet in the air. Like they would just start exploding. And so you would get into the middle of a situation like that and just try and throw your fly in there. So it was pretty exciting when stuff like that happened. And you're also looking at, like caimans, like crocodiles in the water and and all kinds of other fish. Like every fish you ever saw at a tropical aquarium shop is swimming, you know. Like if, if you got off on the beach and went into the water, you'd see all those fish that you were used to looking at in aquarium stores. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and thousands of them. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy environment down there. Right. Right. We got a question from uh, William Ingram in Massachusetts. He says, how would I know about what adventure would be good for me and still be affordable? Uh, he's interested in mostly trout, bonefish, and salmon, with fishing being most important and no need for socializing. You got any, and, and I also got another one from Phil on Internet here that's asking about 
you know, for those of us that don't want to become a plumber <laughs> and can't spend the major dollars to travel like that, he wants to know if you still enjoy catching the smaller fish. But what recommendations do you have for folks that, you know, are watching their budget and would, but would like to get out and fish in, in some more out-of-the-way places? You know, that's a tough one because the fly fishing it has become very expensive, especially for the premier spots for all those things. But I... I guess doing it yourself would be a way to do it. It's a little more adventurous, and but if you're not looking for a lodge situation, I mean, it's like ski bumming or anything. You can, like as a trout angler, you can go to New Zealand on your own and do it yourself, <laughs> you know, maybe hire a guide, maybe not. Chile, Argentina, same deal. You can go to a high-priced lodge, and it'll be awesome because they have all the amenities they've got the guides they got the stuff but if your budget doesn't allow it you know you can go down there and rent a car and have an adventure yeah yeah you and know, there's other uh, rent- uh, there's other options too i i know when you know like if you if you want to go to alaska let's say to go fly fishing there are tent camps on the river, and there are lodges with masseuses in them and <laughs> gourmet chefs. And so there is a range in a lot of these places, too. Yeah, uh, yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah, and for somebody who's done a lot of lodge guiding and a lot of lodge fishing, and but have done that, like the do-it-yourselfers as well, I'd almost tell a guy that the lodges, most of them, by and large, I would say, you know, I haven't been to every lodge, but what they actually provide is pretty incredible, especially for the remote places, because in order to do that yourself, it would be flat impossible to do Mm -hmm. it yourself. Even the steelhead stuff that I do in northern BC with Kispiox Fishing Company. I mean, you can go up there. You can drive. A lot of people do. You can drive up there and do it yourself. But just the infrastructure you need and the knowledge that you need for access is basically what you're paying a lodge or a guide, like in a remote situation, to do. And I'd almost say it'd almost be worth it for a guy to save up if he really wants to have that kind of an experience and even do it like just a one and done, you know, just save up for right. a dream trip and do it. Because what you're getting, I mean, even if the, the fishing might not always pan out for you, but, you know, to be in those situations, there's almost no other way to do it in a lot of places. Right. Yeah, that you, you just don't, you can't yeah. get a helicopter on your own, or that would even be more expensive if you did. So. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, yeah. you can, but where do you go in it? You know, like, there are guys that do that. And, um, but. All in all, like even though the lodges are expensive, it's kind of like they're there for a reason. It's like, yeah. you, you know, it, it's, yeah, so it's a tough call. Like if I if I wasn't shooting these stories, there's no way I could afford to go to any of these places. Yeah. But having been there and sort of knowing what it takes to get to some of these places, 
they are kind of worth it in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. If that's your bag. Like, but as you say, there's levels to everything. I think, you know, a guy could have an equal adventure just flying down to Chile or, and I, I know friends who have done it, just bugged out to New Zealand and rented a van and, and yeah. lived it. And yeah. maybe you're not getting the exact cream of the crop fishing that you could access in a helicopter on the South Island of New Zealand, but I think your adventure is going to be equal to that. Yeah, yeah, good point. Phil down in Kentucky also wrote in here on the Internet, he says, on the out there trips that you have made, has there been emergency medical care available, or were you young enough to think the odds were always in your favor? Um, A little bit of both. I never really thought about it for a long time. Some places I went, I was getting um, med jet insurance. So um, there are there are insurance services that you can buy that will guarantee you evacuation no matter where you are. And like Global Rescue, I think, is a popular. Yeah, one. you know, there's that's another one that I've used, and I thankfully never had to use the service, but I bought the policies for some trips Mm -hmm. and I I've heard that they work (laughs) they work okay yeah and and it's kind of crazy when you go to these sites I I remember looking at them and they they tell you what they're going to do for you and one of the things I remember reading on one of these sites was it wasn't just medical emergency. It was political unrest that they would, they promised to extract you from. So, wow. like, if you were somewhere and a coup happened, you know, they they would come and get you. And, Jeez. yeah, I did hear of some gentlemen in a Russian camp that actually did get flown out to, you know, back to the States to get medical services. And that's kind of what I meant when when I said I, I hear it works because it's yeah I so long story short I, I did buy a couple of those policies for some places yeah. that I went yeah yeah and you know considering a lot of the fly fishers with the money to do these trips are the older side of the scale you know you always have those and, and many of them out of shape <laughs> that I've seen out there then you, you risk you know a heart problem or something like that it could be pretty common so good thing to do tell me about because we're down to the last few minutes here but I want to know about where you went on your trip where you had just the most outrageous fishing out of all the trips wow gee that's a tough one I mean I've had been lucky enough to have good fishing in a lot of places but I would say for just crazy amounts of fish the Seychelles for bonefish is pretty crazy so um, it's for one thing it's like an incredibly beautiful spot on the earth like it's it's just beautiful tropical paradise and uh, there are certain flats that you can stand on in the Seychelles uh, you know, at, at certain tides where every cast you're going to catch like a three to five pound bonefish. Mm. You could throw them behind you and let them land. You can't even see them and you'll, you'll catch a bonefish. I mean, you know, it was it was like that in certain spots. These are not like tiny bonefish. They're decent 
bones. And I guess for just off the charts fishing, um, I haven't really seen anything like that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, just for sure numbers of like right. quality fish like that. Like, I mean, um, yeah, that's pretty crazy. If you you get into those situations, that you know, and they can happen there. Any last words, any advice you'd give to aspiring photographers or writers interested in working in the fly fishing world? Yeah, become a plumber. <laughs> there we go. Back to that again. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, uh, no, you know, I, I I don't know. Like, as I say, you know, you I can't really give anybody any sort of sage advice. It It's just, you know, what, what I did was, doing what I wanted to do, not anything further than that. It wasn't, you know, like I was making a lot of money at it or whatever. It was just, yeah, I was kind of living to do that. And I think most, you know, whether it's skiing or surfing or whatever it is, you find the bums out there that that are kind of doing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. Living yeah. the life. Living the life, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely a, a choice. Yeah, and I think I remember the one trip we took to Alaska to this tent camp on the Togiak River. You know, all the guys were there fishing, and uh, they were all pretty young guys, you know, early 20s back then, but they were living the life. They were up there for the summer making a lot of money. The only place they could spend money was in the Orvis catalog that they had on. You know, in the camp, and yeah. uh, they came out of there with a wad of cash at the end of the summer, and and a lot of great experiences. So there's nothing wrong with living the life, especially when when you can, right? You know, the older you get, it's harder to do. But uh, but I hear you totally. Well, good. It was we got to wind things up here, Roy. But we will stick with me here. We're going to give away. A one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and also a copy of your book, Angling the World, Ten Spectacular Adventures in Fly Fishing, courtesy of Lions Press. Folks, if you don't win Roy's book, I highly encourage you to, to, to buy a copy. We do have a link on the homepage of our website there to his book. Lots of great photography and stories in there. Maybe it'll inspire you to go to one of those places and or, as Roy said, start putting the pennies away. Get that once-in-a-lifetime bucket list trip, which is what uh, many of us may have to do. So check out his book. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link, leave your comments. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away those prizes. So the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from this show's registration database. And if if you didn't register at this point, then it's too late now, but do it for the next show, and uh, maybe you won a prize then. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first up, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, flyfishersinternational.org. And let me fire up the database here and have it go ahead and make a run. And let's see here. Looks like our winner for uh, the Fly Fishing International 
membership is Brian Buma in Alabama. So congratulations, Brian. And I know you'll enjoy that, that membership. And let me hit it again here for the one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at modelbooks.com, another great publisher of fly fishing, fishing books. Uh, so check them out. And our winner for that is Carl Arstand, Carl Arsend, uh, Arsend um, in Maine. So congratulations, Carl. And I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription as well. Okay, now to give away Roy's book, Angling the World, 10 Spectacular Adventures in Fly Fishing. So let me just refresh my... So if you want to answer this question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. You'll see the, the area there of where you could ask questions during the show. Just use that. Send your answer in there. So here we go. What fish was, when Roy was outfitting in the northern reaches of Canada, what fish were they going after up there? What fish were they going after? So when he said that big adventures and crazy jaunts up into the Arctic area, what fish were they after there? So first one to get that right will win Roy's book. So now, Roy, I'm just refreshing my screen here, waiting for uh, an answer. Bob Younger first sea run trout. That wasn't it. Uh, you got the first part right, the sea run pipe, but what was the second part? So, um, okay, <laughs> so Bob wrote back in right away, put chars. We'll give it to Bob. Uh, he was quick on the keyboard there. Yes, sea run Arctic char, right, Roy? And that yeah, what you're after up there? Yeah. yeah, right on, Bob. Yeah, there we We're fast, Bob, so good for you. Yeah. So, Bob, send me your... Uh, you can use the same text box that you just answered and send me your shipping address and we'll get you out that book courtesy alliance press so uh and i know you'll enjoy it even if you don't go to those places it's fun to dream and live vicariously through through roy <laughs> right so, hey roy i appreciate you being with us tonight thanks for sharing your adventures and your knowledge along the way so thanks so much for being with us um, no problem, Roger. Thanks for having me on. Great. And hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't yet, just look at the link at the top of the menu there and check out the archive. You can look in our past shows. I've done over 345 shows now. If you search for just about anything in that uh, search box, you'll probably find something that matches. So lots of knowledge from many great fly fishers around the world. So check it out. Do some exploring and, and enjoy yourself. Um, our next broadcast will be on October 20th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Daniel Ritz. And our topic for the show will be Daniel Ritz Attempts Western Native Trout Challenge. So Daniel is fly fishing across the western United States in an attempt to accomplish a master caster class of the Western Native Trout Challenge. His goal is to land each of the 20 native trout species in the historical ranges of the 12 states in the West. Join us to find out how Daniel is doing with the challenge, 
learn about what it takes to participate and hear about a few experiences had along the way. Maybe you'll get inspired and want to try it yourself. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click the Add to Calendar button just below Daniel's picture there on our homepage, and you'll be all set. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, These Fairies Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and get the show. Oh.